0: This is Law Bites, a podcast with Michael Geist.
1: Not exactly back to school, but back to learning for students across the province. Ontario's at-home learning program launched today after schools were shut down March 14th to curb the spread of COVID-19. The program is led by teachers and, of course, presents new challenges, but the goal is to keep students on track to complete the school year.
0: Fair dealing, the Canadian version of fair use, has been recognized by the Supreme Court of Canada as a user's right. The need for a large and liberal interpretation of the right is a cornerstone of Canadian copyright law. As millions of Canadian students remain at home due to the coronavirus pandemic, the importance of fair dealing has grown, with teachers seeking to provide access to teaching materials and ensure that they remain compliant with the law. Sam Trosso and Lisa Macklem of Western University in London, Ontario, recently published a detailed analysis on fair dealing and emergency remote teaching in Canada. Sam is a professor at Western University where he is jointly appointed to the Faculty of Law and Faculty of Information and Media Studies. Lisa is a doctoral student at the Faculty of Law and lecturer at King's College. They joined me on the podcast to discuss fair dealing, its application during the current pandemic, and recent developments involving reading aloud programs and the Federal Court of Appeal decision in York University versus Access Copyright. Sam and Lisa, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. My pleasure. Glad to be here. Okay, I'm so glad both of you are able to join. First off, how are you managing uh, during this this difficult time dealing with uh, COVID-19, the coronavirus?
2: Staying very busy, managing fine, but staying very busy. This is definitely more work than going into the office. Okay, I'll tell busy. you that. busy. Busy yeah. is good.
0: Busy is good. How about I'm doing you? Doing very well. Oh, good. I'm happy to hear it. Lisa, how about you?
1: Same. Really busy. You know, trying to get courses up online so quickly, and then you know having to field lots of student questions and supporting them, and and uh, and then you know trying to do some work on helping other teachers. So really
0: busy. <laughs> okay, that sounds great. Yeah. No, it seems like just about everyone you talk to hasn't seen any sort of slowdown at all. If anything, it seems like it's, there's far more work now than ever before. So as, as, as I think you know... I, some of my recent podcasts have, have in a sense skirted around fair dealing a little bit. We've looked at uh, open access to research, the benefits of open educational resources, and most recently taken a look at the Internet Archive's National Emergency Library, which is grounded in, in the U.S. fair use provisions. Um, Canada's fair dealing rules have been alluded to, but we haven't gone into real detail examining their implications, particularly during the current pandemic. And the two of you wrote a terrific joint paper uh, several weeks ago that I thought did a really nice job of applying fair dealing to the current environment. And so what we're hoping to do here is kind of unpack what you had to say there and then examine some of the other issues that have have popped up over the last number of weeks with respect to copyright fair dealing um, education and the like. Why don't we start uh, as you did in your paper, Sam, um, by highlighting what is fair dealing and how does it compare to fair use?
2: Well, fair dealing in Canada and fair use in the U.S. are very similar in, in purpose. They're, they're both grounded in the same underlying policy that our copyright regimes are supposed to be utilitarian and that they're supposed to protect the public interest. And there needs to be a balance between the rights of users and users and the public and the people who actually create and own the copyright. So basically, fair dealing is, is, and fair use is a right on the part of the end user to utilize without without payment or permission substantial parts of an owner's copyrighted work, and there are very very um, strong similarities between U.S. fair use and Canadian fair dealing, but there are a couple of differences that are that are worth mentioning.
0: Sure, but you, can you highlight what those those differences yeah. might be? And
2: so, in the U.S. Copyright Act, Act Section one hundred and seven, um, takes an open ended approach to what the subject matter of fair use can be. They use the terms such as. uh, Uses such such as education, research, scholarship, do not infringe copyright if it's fair. Whereas in Canada, you first have to come within an enumerated, uh, specifically stated category. So it's more, on the surface, it seems like it's more limited. However, in 2012, the category of education was added to section 29. So as it stands right now, The categories in in Canada, which which could be fair dealing, are very broad. And it includes not only private study, research, news reporting, criticism, review, but now it also includes education as well as parody and satire. So for purposes of this discussion about what what teachers can use, it's certainly going to be within education. So that's not the issue. The, The other difference between Canadian fair dealing and U.S. fair use is that the criteria that are listed, uh, the the criteria that are applied are a little bit different. In the United States, the the Fair Use Section 107 actually states what the four fair use factors are. And there's a long history of case law in the United States. In Canada, there's less case law, and there there is nothing in the act that states what the factors are. The factors were adopted by the Supreme Court in the 2004 a unanimous 2004 decision of CCH versus Law Society of Upper Canada. There are six factors. As a practical matter, however, my belief is that fair use and fair dealing are converging and many of the um, papers that we see written or cases that we see coming out of the United States would, would likely have the same result in Canada.
0: Yeah, it's interesting to hear that, that notion of convergence, and I, I agree you. I've done some pieces as well that have highlighted uh, how we've started to see some of that convergence. Uh, Lisa, Sam just mentioned the CCH case, which, uh, as, as you know, and as, as many listeners will know, is one of the leading Supreme Court of Canada cases on fair dealing. Can, can you walk us through a little bit what the Supreme Court has had to say in that case and perhaps a couple of the others when it comes to fair dealing?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, this pretty, even though we haven't had a lot of cases, they've all been very good and very clear. So they've all emphasized you know, three the three main uh, things of balance, taking a large and liberal interpretation to users' rights and fair dealing, and underlining the public interest. So if we go back to 2002 and the, the Berge v. Gallerie d'art de Petit Champlain case, Um, The court there said that uh, copyright should provide, and I'm quoting, a balance between the public interest in the encouragement and dissemination of works of the arts and intellect, and obtaining a just reward for the creator, end quote. Um, And really, history feeds into this, so bear with me for a minute. I'm going to take you way back just for a second. Um, If we go all the way back to the sort of underpinnings of copyright to the Stationers Monopoly of 1557, That was put in place to prevent the spread of seditious materials and really stifle freedom of speech. Then we have copyright, actually sort of being born with the statute of Anne in 1710. And it's interesting to note that the actual title for that is an act for the encouragement of learning by vesting the copies of printed books in the authors or purchasers of such copies during the times therein mentioned. So it was supposed to be a very short duration. It emphasized um, learning, encouragement of learning, and it really emphasized this balance right there between creators and users and this public interest. So all of our uh, Supreme Court cases also sort of build on this foundation. So CCH uh, clarified and extended users' rights in 2004. As Sam already said, it sets out the six-factor test. Um, And I'm going to quote uh, the court again. They said, these allowable purposes should not be given a restrictive interpretation, or this could result in undue restrictions of users' rights. Um, The court also went on to say um, that the availability of a license is not relevant in deciding whether or not use use is fair. Um, And... Uh, the Supreme Court in CCH also said the fair dealing exception is perhaps more properly understood as an integral part of the Copyright Act than simply a defense. So any act falling within the fair dealing exception will not be an infringement of copyright. Um, if we jump ahead to 2012, we had um, the Supreme Court came out with two further cases that. Um, came down again on a large and liberal reading. That was, of course, the Society of Composers, Authors, and Music Publishers of Canada versus Bell Canada, the SoCan case, in which uh, the individual use of previews of music for ringtones was declared as a fair dealing because it was for a number of factors I won't go into just yet. Uh, And we also had the Alberta Education versus Access Copyright Um, Case in which case the Supreme Court decision underlined that teachers copying uh, for students was definitely fair dealing. Um, And even if we jump ahead to this year, uh, in a case where you wouldn't think this would be um, prevalent, is the Keatley Surveying Limited versus Terranet uh, case. And it's ostensibly a case about Crown copyright and surveys, but the court in that decision also stated that. Fair dealing and users' rights are to be given a large and liberal interpretation. The court really emphasized here the link between the public interest and fair dealing. Um, So again, those three factors, uh, large and liberal interpretation, public interest, uh, and balance really run throughout all of the decisions very consistently
0: it's helpful to to trace not just the the recent decision, but the the lineage in many ways that goes back centuries and to understand where the point of emphasis has been for the Supreme Court of Canada today. So you've both talked a bit about the factors with respect to fair dealing. And I think the, the, the central part or one of the key contributions from your paper, of course, was to walk through the six factors that we have in Canada under fair dealing and trying to apply it to the current challenges. Uh, Lisa, can you just continue and and perhaps do that for us?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So factor one is the purpose of the dealing and um, the Supreme court ruling in CCH explains that in Canada, the purpose of the dealing will be fair if it is for one of the allowable purposes under the copyright act. And certainly education uh, meets that standard, no problem. Um, and certainly, the extreme and extraordinary circumstances surrounding COVID-19 are going to weigh very heavily here, right? So there's this public interest goals in supporting uh, the public interest and social distancing as we moved everything online. Um, so I think that that's a pretty, pretty easy um, factor to pass through uh, in this extraordinary time. Factor two looks at the character of the dealing. Um, And this one is a little bit more um, interesting, I think, in light of the recent decision, which we'll come to at the end. Um, But what the court's looking at here is the fact that a single copy is going to be considered more fair than, say, um, multiple copies, right? So aggregate copying. So if we turn to copyright at Western, okay, they interpret this, this is like the guidelines that Western has online for for teachers. Um, And it actually states that this fairness factor focuses on what is actually being done with the copies, considering how the reproductions are distributed, to whom, and in what way they are central questions that impact the character of the dealing. So when we're talking about online course materials, teachers are uploading one copy Okay, so it's really very similar to putting something on reserve for a student. Um, So that's one way to look at at the character of of the dealing. Um, Factor three looks at the amount of the dealing. And it's really important here to remember that the Supreme Court has held that while the quantity of the copying helps to determine fairness, it isn't determinative in and of itself. So the general rule of thumb is to take no more of a work than is necessary to achieve the purpose. And quoting specifically from CCH, um, they say, both the amount of the dealing and importance of the work allegedly infringed should be considered in assessing fairness. If the amount taken from a work is trivial, the fair dealing analysis need not be undertaken at all because the court will have concluded that there was no copyright infringement. So um, there's no real bright lines here. And I think that people run into trouble when they, they start to try and find those bright lines. It's very situation specific. Um, And certainly in the case of moving all of our courses online in COVID, um, you know, we can't be expected to think that, you know, students may not have their their materials with them. So this was kind of an extraordinary case um, in that there may be additional amounts um, that would be sort of allowable due to the public interest nature of uh, what's going on. Jumping ahead to factor four, alternatives to the dealing. Um, And this one is specific to Canadian law. So it asks whether or not there are actually alternatives to the dealing. So given, again, the extreme nature of the situation and the rapidity with instructors had to go online with their courses, it's likely that most materials will in fact be those core materials that are needed to finish courses quickly, making a use more necessary to achieve that purpose. So again, it's the rapidity with which people had to go online that... Um, You know, they may not have had a chance to fully consider everything that they were putting online, but there are lots of um, checks and balances in place as well. Um, You know, if it's a closed educational site, um, if things are put up and um, not left forever, those sites basically once the course is done, students no longer have access, etc., um, going forward, I think you'll see that um, we've had so many sites that have come forward with open access materials to help in this particular situation. Um, and there's lots of um, possibilities for finding open access materials um, for going to the library and finding things that are already licensed uh, as well. So, again, with the alternatives to the dealing factor Four in this current emergency circumstance, um, Again, you're going to see probably a little bit more um, variation there.
2: That, I- if, if I could add one thing to that, and that is usually we would have the luxury of being able to go into the library and browse around and seeing if there's an edition of the same work that's not under copyright. If you're dealing with uh, classical music or, or uh, Shakespeare or Aristotle, you have the ability to do that. Unfortunately, we are cut off as instructors. We're cut off from our libraries. We cannot go in and browse and look for other types of alternatives. And I I think that just means that we need to be given much more latitude in terms of this uh, alternative. Thank you.
0: Yeah, thanks. thanks for adding that, Sam. That's, that's pretty consistent with some of the things that we heard just last week in the podcast dealing with the National Emergency Library and some of the reasons why the Internet Archive felt it was so, so urgent to replace the lost access that's, that's now affected hundreds of millions of people due to the closure of libraries, both public and within our institutions.
1: So um just jumping back into the factors, um, factor five is the nature of the work. Um, you know this factor considers whether the work was published or unpublished. It's almost never a factor in the decision. Um, it is important I just want to restate again that none of these factors are looked at in isolation. It's always a balancing of um, the different factors so that it's never um, you know, oh well, you know this one is is clearly not meeting. Um, The criteria. So it's not a fair use um, or fair dealing. It's always going to be um, balanced off. So factor six is the effect of the dealing on the work. So this basically um, perfectly aligns with the fourth factor in the U.S. Um, And again, um, referencing CCH, the, the court said, quote, requires a balancing of the benefit of the public, will derive if the use is permitted, end quote, versus The personal gain the copyright owner will receive if the use is denied. So it's essentially whether or not um, the use is going to be taking away from monies that would be going to the creator. Okay, is it going to damage the end um, results of um, you know that balance to the creator? Is it a substitute uh, for for the work itself? Um, And Again, I think that this is one of those areas where, um, particularly right now, because we don't have access to the libraries as we would normally have, um, and that students um, you know, may be finding, um, you know, they've already bought their materials for these courses. Uh, so if we're just trying to supplement them because they may not have the usual access they, that they would have to them, um, these things are not necessarily going to replace a purchase itself. Um, so, again, um, that would be the last one, the effect of the dealing on the work. Is this a substitute? Are we actually costing a sale by using this particular work? And uh, I think that has to be, um, again, it's going to be balanced off against the, the other factors.
0: Okay, sure. So so thanks for that. There's a lot there, but that, of course, is typical of what a copyright analysis would look like. Uh, and you've and, uh, you, you done it nicely here and, of course, in the paper as well. I mean, it, it really does highlight How the fair dealing provisions are adaptable to even circumstances like this as part of that analysis and that there's a strong fair dealing case to be made uh, in this particular environment, especially as our teachers and students need that kind of access and may find themselves shut out without causing Uh, or facilitating new kinds of economic harm, given that in many instances they've already paid for access but find themselves unable to access those materials. Uh, Sam, what else beyond some of this fair dealing analysis can universities or teachers be doing?
2: Yes, and that's an excellent question because um, we're certainly not saying that just because fair dealing should be given a broad interpretation that it covers every possible situation under any type of distribution. So it's really important that we address that. First and foremost, these course materials that we're going to be claiming uh, fair dealing use for really need to be put in a password-protected course management system. If we make these things of, of fundamentally uh, available on the open internet, that, that totally, I think, destroys the ability, well, it weakens the ability to make that, to make that claim. So the, the purpose is not to make these materials available to the public for free, it's to focus them into our classes. Which means password protected uh, types of uh, g- course information systems, which are available at every university. Um, if the university has already gone to the expense, second, if the university has gone to the expense of licensing material, we should be using that. We shouldn't be trying to recreate. Um, we shouldn't be able. We shouldn't be trying to recreate access because in our course catalog you can link to an article, and the university has already. Um, license, license that. And I think that cuts down a lot of the uh, guess, guesswork. Finally, I think that um, universities need to have very, very clear, accessible, and understandable uh, copyright, uh, not, just, not just fair dealing, but underlying copyright guidelines and um, instructional materials so people can get into a better position, not just copyright experts, not just law professors, not just librarians, but your your rank and file course instructors have to understand what it means to be practicing uh, fair fair copyright, um, certainly uh, trying to use trying to encourage the uh, creation of open educational resources will go a long way to making this issue less important in, in the future, but I think those are some of the things that the university can be um, that the university should be doing okay
0: thanks for that so you, you closed off by noting the the benefits that might come from open educational resources. Are there other kinds of reforms that you can think of, particularly in the law, that may have been highlighted by the the current situation you know for example we're seeing in the in the patent area a lot of people waking up to the challenges of, of accessing medicines and the patents may at times create barriers to access and there's of course a lot of concern about that as we hopefully see some sort of vaccine or other treatments come along uh, what have we learned or, or what are some of the outcomes that we ought to be thinking about as we've been grappling with this now for nearly a couple of months about where there are shortcomings in the law that we ought to be thinking about it, thinking about addressing
2: well, we've had a long conversation with this over the years with respect to the um, with, with respect to the need to constantly review the Copyright Act. We've seen a number of legislative panels come out with recommendations. Um, certainly, crown copyright should be reconsidered so government documents are more available. Certainly, we need to look at the anti circumvention rules and make sure there are ample um, exclusions for what would constitute fair dealing. We should be very careful of the. Um, now apparent need to engage in some uh, term extension because of the new uh, trade agreement and make sure that users aren't hurt by that. Um, The the Copyright Board needs to sort of uh, uh, deal with some internal reforms. But I think for the most part, uh, Canadian copyright law policy has landed in a a pretty good place. Much of the guidance has come from the courts, but I think uh, we do have a balanced regime right now And uh, yes, some tweaks are needed, but I don't think we need to be talking about any major changes to Canadian copyright
0: law. Okay, fair enough. You know, beyond the the fair dealing analysis that we saw in your piece, there's some other issues that have come up over the last number of weeks with respect to to copyright, especially fair dealing. I thought we might start with uh, the issue of reading books aloud. Um, And there's been a response from copyright collectives and publishers in Canada who launched a, a read aloud Canadian books program, which, and I'll quote, on a temporary basis, creates a waiver of license fees related to the reading of all or part of select books from participating publishers and posting the video recording online. Uh, least, do you have some thoughts on the program? I think there's a lot of people that looked at this and were somewhat surprised to see publishers and copyright collectives say that you needed a license to read a book aloud to begin with. And you know, what are your thoughts on the program? Where does the this issue of licensing come in and, and where might fair dealing play a role?
1: Um, I have a lot of thoughts on this actually. Um, I was uh, able to actually join a seminar from the American University out of Washington um, and they did a, a seminar on, the, on reading aloud to students and brought in teachers and librarians as well as copyright scholars to talk about it. And one of the things that they really underlined was the, the purpose of reading aloud. It's not entertainment. It's not just watching somebody, you know, read a book aloud. And I can see from the standpoint of publishers that they're like, well, you know, we charge for this on Audible. Like this is, this is a market, right? This is, this is how we monetize our work. Um, so I could see where on a public platform, sure, that's that's maybe entertainment, um, and you know maybe you are entitled at that that point to charge you know some minimal amount for access to it. But in an educational setting, reading aloud serves a number of different purposes. It's a way for um, teachers to create community. So this gets back to that whole idea about purpose in the first factor, right? So it's not just about reading the book aloud. It's about creating that community. There are, um, it's making it accessible because some students learn orally, not visually. They need to hear it. It's a way for teachers to check um, that students can can um, read things back, that they're, they're picking them up, it's a comprehension thing. Um, and it's not just for primary students. This is something that goes all the way through Uh, and certainly does help to create that educational community. So I think that that's an area where courts really have to delve down. And I I see a real parallel between this, between um, courts understanding the nuances of technology and technological delivery of materials, as well as the underlying purposes, Um, because they're usually much deeper than, than what you might think when you look at them. And, you know, I think that a lot of people who are now at home having to homeschool are getting a whole new appreciation for, you know, the purposes behind some of these educational things and how there, there are real reasons behind what teachers do and why they do it.
0: Well, that's, that's some really interesting points. So, I mean, I guess the, the takeaway there is that if you were to conduct a fair dealing analysis as part of this, it's possible that some of these kinds of works, given the purpose, uh, some of these uses might well fall within, within fair dealing from a Canadian perspective, given how it is so closely linked to the education, the education of students, uh, unlike some of, the, some of the other instances where a public performance may be seen as a far more commercial activity.
1: Well, and I mean the the conversation I had um, with uh, the American seminar. I mean it was, we had Peter Jazzy was on there, and Michael Carroll, you know, big names in American copyright. And the conclusion was the same, right? If it's in a it's it's in an educational setting, if it's in a closed, um, you know, web environment, it's fair use. So I I can't see any reason why it wouldn't be fair dealing in Canada.
0: Okay, it's interesting. It's certainly an issue that I think has caused a lot of people some amount of concern as they've had to try to take a closer. Look at it. Um, well, we closed with, with one other major issue that, that's popped up, and that's just before we started to record this episode. The Federal Court of Appeal issued its much anticipated ruling in York University versus Access Copyright. This is a case that anyone in the Canadian copyright world has certainly been following very closely. There, there were two aspects to the decision. One, that the, and perhaps most importantly, that the Access Copyright tariff is not mandatory, and that Access Copyright cannot seek to enforce that tariff against those that haven't chosen to uh, take on the license. Uh, But there's also especially consistent with our fair dealing discussion. The court upheld the rejection of the York fair dealing guidelines as they were back in 2012, arguing that they did not meet fair dealing as York had cross appealed on that issue. It asked the court to essentially opine on it. Uh, Sam, do you have any initial thoughts? I'm sure you're still digesting it, but any initial thoughts on the decision and its implications?
2: Yes, I think the first part of the decision is uh, very, very welcome, and that was really dodging a bullet because if that would have gone the other way, that would have been very disastrous for colleges and universities, and I think a lot of a lot of us would have been sort of forced back into a, a era of uh, compliance and uh, necessity with uh, with with access copyright, and so that, that part of the decision was, was 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 really good, and I think we all owe a huge debt of gratitude to Ariel Katz and Howard Knopf for the very heavy lifting that they've done on this issue over the years. I, I cannot see the Supreme Court reversing that in light of the fact that they pretty much already uh, ruled in the same direction in the Sodra case. In terms of the fair dealing, though, I, I think there are two directions I want to take this. First of all, I think some of the court's analysis was, frankly, wrong. I think they misunderstood some of the fine points of, uh, of the two cases from the Pentology um, in terms, in terms of uh, taking the focus of the users, I think I think they got some of that wrong. And I think the idea of creating this artificial distinction between the purposes of the university and the purposes of the students really flies in the face of what Justice Abella was was saying in Alberta versus Access Copyright with respect to the holistic uh, purpose that we have uh, between the university and and the students, between teachers and students, in terms of Learning, so I think that likely could be that likely uh, could be reversed if it's if it's aggressively and properly pursued. But beyond that, even even if this case becomes final, it was very fact dependent. The the trial court and the court of appeals, I think, were very disturbed by some of the very particular things that were happening at York. And remember, this goes back many many years to the era where we were still using uh, paper photocopied course packs. And we're certainly in this current environment getting beyond that. But I think one thing universities really need to make clear and teachers need to make clear is we are not going to use off-campus for-profit copy shops. That's what derailed York's argument. That's what got York in in so much trouble. And I think we have to be really clear that we're not doing that. Now, the court was also questioning the motivation of the university, which I think they overreached. I think that York w- was not doing this in order to um, bolster their uh, their enrollment. Their enrollment is already huge. They don't have to save a couple of hundred thousand dollars to, in order in order to do that. But I think that it's important for universities to issue statements. And I think many of them have already done this in terms of their fair dealing guidelines. Universities should issue statements saying, we, we, we engage in these copyright practices for the purpose of enhancing the learning experience of our students, and that is why we do it. So I, I think that many universities, including including mine, which has a very, very different type of copyright guideline than York's, are going to be able to distinguish their uh, situation on the ground from, from York's. So I, I think that there is uh, no reason to panic I don't think anybody should be going into, oh, my God, we've got to change our rules mode because uh, really this uh, this was an excellent outcome and a not great but not terrible outcome.
0: Sam and Lisa, it's a pretty good place to stop, highlighting both the kinds of changes that we're seeing right now, but, uh, and, and your really excellent paper doing some of that fair-dealing analysis and highlighting how we're still grappling with these issues and going to continue to do so in any number of different cases. So thank you thank so you. much for joining me on the podcast. My
2: pleasure. Oh, thank you.
0: That's the Law Bites podcast for this week. If you have comments, suggestions, or other feedback, write to LawBytes at pobox.com. Follow the podcast on Twitter at LawBytesPod or Michael Geist at mgeist. You can download the latest episodes from my website at michaelgeist.ca or subscribe via RSS at Apple Podcast, Google, or Spotify. The LawBytes podcast is produced by Gerardo Lebron Leboy. Music by the Leboy Brothers, Gerardo and Jose Lebron Leboy. Credit information for the clips featured in this podcast can be found in the show notes for this episode at michaelgeist.ca. I'm Michael Geist. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.